Over the past four weeks, we've been doing different messages on the idea of growing, this idea of growing in Christ. And this will be the last in the series on growing. But my heart kind of resonated here in this section, this idea about assurance of our salvation. And I'll tell you why. A couple of weeks ago, we, we had the breakfast and we had Don McClure here. And Don was taking questions at the end of his message, just kind of general questions, this idea of growing. And I got about 25 little cards with questions on them. Eight of them were on this topic of assurance. Eight of the 25 all dealt with, how do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that a neighbor is saved? How do I know that a family member is saved? And so I felt it's very important for us as Christians to understand our security in Christ. Now, the Bible teaches that we are secure in the work that God has done. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 says, These things have been written that you may know that you have eternal life. And then if you read the book of 1 John, 11 main things come out as evidences of our faith. God desires us to know it, to be secure in it. If you're doubting, it's very difficult to be powerful for Christ's sake, isn't it? If you're wondering if you're saved, how, is it, how are you going to be able to tell somebody else that they need Jesus if you're not even sure? And so the idea behind insurance is that God wants us to know. It's his desire. Now, some believe that salvation must be maintained that you receive it by grace, but you have to hold on to it by works. But that is not a biblical concept. It is true that some people can have salvation and have doubts. And I'm hoping that this message will help you this morning. And it is also true that there are some that think they're saved and they're not. We know from Matthew chapter 7, right? Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name. And Jesus says, away from me. I never knew you. But the heart of the gospel is that God does a work on the heart, and it is a permanent work. He begins the work, and he's faithful to complete the work. So this morning, we will see why a born-again Christian can have confidence that you are eternally secure. And we're going to take this in sections, and so we're just going to look at verse 1 to start with. This is Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Why can you have assurance? Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So why can you have assurance? Well, it says right there, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. The non-believer, those that do not trust in Christ, they are at war with God. But those of us that know Christ, that are born again, we have peace. Now, the background and setting for the book of Romans Understand that Paul the Apostle wrote the book of Romans to a church in Rome. And if you understood the way, kind of the makeup of this church, it had both Jews and Gentiles mixed together. And the main theme of the book of Romans is the righteousness that comes from God apart from works. It is God through Christ. It is Christ's righteousness, not our own. That's why you're saved. Paul begins right here in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, therefore... And when you see the word therefore, you say, what is it therefore you look back? And what Paul is doing here, he's reflecting back to what he had just said in verses 3 and 4. And in verses 3 and 4, it talked about being justified by faith. Justified by faith, not by works. So 3 and 4 just hammers that out, that your justification, your right standing before God is not because of what you do, it's because of what Christ did. It is Him, not you. 
And, and what Paul says here is that we have peace with God. This is in the present tense. And whenever you see a verb in the present tense, it means present, going on all the way into the future to infinity. Peace with God was established the moment that you received Christ. The moment that you trusted in Christ, peace was established between you and God. And the peace that Paul is talking about here is not the feeling of peace, the emotion of peace. He's talking about reconciliation with a relationship that was estranged and broken. Before Christ, you were not at peace with God. But when you repent of your sin and receive Christ, suddenly you're reconciled to him. And so the question that I asked myself, and maybe you have in your mind, why do we need peace with God if God loves everyone, right? I want to answer that. First of all, understand God is holy. We had that song, Majesty. Do you understand the holiness of God? That means that God is separate, apart. He is unique. He is the one who dwells in unbelievable light. We are not holy. And because of sin, we are separated from a holy God. And God's anger is against sin. God is angry with the unbeliever because of their sin and rebellion. And even though he has a deep love for people, at the same time, he is angry at the rebellious hearts. The person who is not born again, the person who does not know Jesus, the person who is not covered by the atoning sacrifice of his blood, they are under God's wrath. Psalm chapter 7 verse 11 says this, God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. So it must be understood, every human being on the planet apart from salvation in Christ, is considered an enemy of God. Guys, this is a real war. This is not an issue of how we feel. It's an issue of a relationship with God. And those that do not have Christ have a broken, a severed relationship with God. Because of sin, people's relationship with God is broken. And they are at enmity with Him. They are at war with Him. He is at war with the sinner, and the sinner is at war with Him. Paul explained this in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and also in Ephesians chapter 5. This is what Paul said in Romans 1.18. He said, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In Ephesians 5.6, he says, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, these sinful things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Those that do not have Christ, they are sons of disobedience. God's wrath, his anger is kindled against those people who trust in themselves, will not believe in Christ, want to do things their own way. They are estranged. They are at war with God. And their hearts are in rebellion to him. And although they don't know it, and sometimes they're very nice and kind and gentle people, although they don't know it, they are enemies of the cross, enemies of God. And not only that, they're under the power and control of Satan. Satan has dominion over their hearts. Those who are not born again in Christ, they belong to Satan's realm because Satan is con in control of this world system. 1 John 5.19 says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So those who refuse Christ, those who live for themselves, those who live 
for this world, those who have any other religion, any other thing, they are enemies of the cross. This is what James says in James 4.4, 4, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, he makes himself an enemy of God. Those who are opposed to Christ, they are not God's friends, no matter how they feel. They are an enemy. They are at war, and they are under his wrath. It's under that context that now God says, but you have peace. Do you see the weight of that? Now in Christ, we are at peace. What does that mean? That means we're no longer at war with God. We're no longer estranged from him. We're brought into the family of God. We are part of the kingdom of God. Literally, a peace treaty has been signed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're at peace with God. Peace is a new status between God and the believer we are reconciled now to God. That relationship that was so broken, unfixable by ourselves, now God himself, through Jesus Christ, has brought us together in his son. Colossians 1.20 puts it like this. It says, Jesus reconciled all things to himself, having made peace through the blood on the cross. Why do you think Jesus' very last words on the cross were, to tell us die, it is finished. That means paid in full. By the blood of Christ, our sins were paid in full on the cross. And suddenly, what was once estranged, unable to be fixed, is brought together as whole, reconciled in him. This is why John writes this in John 14, 27. Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room, Peace I leave to you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you, do not let your heart be troubled. Do not be fearful. We now have peace with God. We now are right with God. We now are established in his kingdom, in his family. If you are not trusting in Christ alone, you have no peace. No peace with God. But if Christ is your savior, if he is your king, if you're trusting in him, that reconciliation process has been brought together. I was reading an article by a journalist and editor of the Atlantic magazine. His name is Scott Stolzel. And he shared, he, he's been dealing with, for as long as he's been alive, that he can remember with anxiety and worry, these kind of things. And, and so he said that, here's what I've tried to deal with my anxiety and worry. He said, I've done individual psychotherapy, 30 years of it, family therapy, group therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, rational emotive therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, hypnosis, meditation, role-playing, introceptive exposure therapy, video exposure therapy, self-help workbooks, massage therapy, prayer, acupuncture, yoga. Oh, medication. Thorazine, Impramine, Isparamine, Nardal, Buspar, Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, Wolbruchin, Effexor, Celexa, Lexapro, Cymbalta, Lovox, Transidone, Levoxyl, Enderol, Transexine, Serox, Sintrax, St. John's Wort, Zopolidin, Valium, Xanax, and Clonopin. Oh, beer, wine, gin, bourbon, <laughs> vodka, scotch. And he says, here's what's worked. Nothing. Not one thing worked. 
That is not a solution. And I understand that there may be some here that struggle with depression or you may have a chemical imbalance and I have no problems with you needing some medication to help with that. But if you want real peace, peace that lasts, it is only found in Christ, in Christ Jesus alone. We have peace with God, first thing. Why can you be assured? Second thing, we stand in his grace. We stand in his grace. Salvation is through Christ alone, through grace alone. And we can rest assured it's not of our performance. It's not your performance. Now look at verse 2. This is the first half of verse 2. It says, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace which we stand. Now Paul says, through whom, that, that means, who is he just talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Because we're at peace with God, we're no longer an enemy of God. But now we stand, we're settled, right, in his grace, by the grace of God. And everything that we have in relation to salvation is because of Jesus Christ. It is because of him and because of him alone. It's because of him that you know that you're right with God. And then he says the words, we have obtained our introduction. Those group of words really just mean access. That word introduction in the Greek, it, it literally means access. You now, I now, if you know Christ, you have access to God. You have direct access into the, king, into the kingdom, direct access to the throne room of God. You have direct access into his grace. Everything is by the grace of God. Ephesians 2.18 says, For through him we both have our access in one spirit and one father. And so what this picture is, is that we can now come boldly before our father and bring whatever we're dealing with right into the throne room of God. Ephesians 4, I mean, Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. We can come boldly because now we stand in his grace. Access to God is one thing that the Old Testament Jews did not have. Think about it. In the Exodus, God was a cloud by day and a fire by night. The only person that had any access really to God directly was Moses, wasn't he? He was a representative. Hey, when they built the tabernacle and then they built the temple, there was a separation between the Holy of Holies, which contained God's presence, and the people. And only once a year could the high priest go into that presence. But on the cross, when Jesus breathed his last, when he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit, that separation, that veil was split right down the middle from top to bottom and suddenly it blew open to the doors to anyone who puts their trust in him. Now we have complete access to the Father. And we have access, it says right here in verse 2, into this grace by faith. By faith. It is on the basis of our trust, of our faith in Christ, not on the basis of your trust in yourself and your own efforts that you have access to him. It is in him, his grace, that we stand. Faith is a response. It is a response to the truth where we understand what Jesus did, who he is, and we respond to that. At that point, boom, access is granted. And I wonder sometimes, what is holding you back if you don't know Christ? What is it? What are you afraid of? What do you think you can do? There is only one way. It is him and him alone. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us 
to God. It is through Christ alone. It is He who brings us to God. And we stand in His grace. Grace, unmerited favor, God's gift to us. Literally, the picture is that we live in that grace. We're engulfed in that grace. That word stand is the Greek word hestime. It means to abide. It means to be firmly set. It means to be fixed. We abide in Him. We're settled in Him. We're fixed in Him. It means that grace isn't wishy-washy. It doesn't move around. And if it's of grace, then it's not of the law. That means you do not get saved by grace and then have to live out your Christian life by the law. It doesn't begin in grace and then you're trying to work it all out through the law. No, it's all of grace. We stand fully in grace. Both our justification, our right standing before God, and our sanctification, it is all by God's grace. In Romans 14, 4, God makes us a promise. It says that the Lord is able to help you stand. Now, if you're relying this morning on religious efforts, keeping the sacraments, Jesus plus anything like the law, or God's just going to somehow give you a pass, or maybe God is up there and he holds a scale and you're hoping that your good outweighs the bad. If it's any of those things and you are standing on shifting sand and you will find yourself standing before God and being judged in his wrath. But if you're standing by the grace of God, trusting in Christ alone, then you are on a solid foundation that doesn't move. Understand that the law does not justify anyone. It does not, and it cannot. That's never been the purpose of the law. Romans 3.20 says, Because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law was given so that we as sinners would recognize, I cannot do it. Lord, I need help. He provides the help in his son, Jesus Christ. And it is a terrible thing to tell somebody that you're saved by God's grace and grace alone, but you have to keep working until the time you get to heaven. That is not what the scripture teaches. We stand in grace. And that never changes. And since our peace, our access is through God's grace, it's on the merits of Christ and him alone. It's all by grace. We can't earn it and we cannot maintain it. God's grace is so important. Galatians 5.4, Paul said to the Galatians, you who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. If you're seeking to be justified by anything else than the work of Christ, you've fallen, you're apart from the grace of God. You're either saved by grace and kept by grace or you're saved by the law and kept by the law. You cannot be saved by grace and then kept by the law. That's the point. It's all of grace. And the reason this is so important If I could lose my salvation, I would. I would. And I would do it today. I'd lose it, and I'd try to put it back on. I'd lose it, and I'd try to put it back on. I'd lose it, and I'd try to put it back on. But in Christ, we're firm. We're settled because it's all of him. This is why Paul says in Romans 8.1, Therefore, there is now, present tense, no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation on the believer in Christ. It is so secure. It is rock solid. And there is nothing, and I mean nothing, that can separate you from the love of Christ. Listen to Paul's words as he literally is pleading with the people in Rome. In Romans 8, 35 through 39. Paul says this. 
He says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril? Just as it is written, for your sake, we're being put to death all day long. We're being considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor the present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you're doubting, understand that you stand in the grace of God and it does not move. And that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. And there is no condemnation on you. Wonderful book, I want to recommend it to you. Chuck Swindoll called Grace Awakening. Wonderful book. This is what Chuck says. He says, when we're thinking about grace and the law, it's like two different faces on people. He says, grace is a yes face where all things are possible, and law and religious works is a no face. This is what he said. He said, the no person who lives by the law, this person is a chronically unhappy individual, bitter and insecure. They are imprisoned behind bars of petty concerns and critical suspicions. They exist in the bondage that hinders their ability to see beyond life demands. Lacking grace, they have reduced life to a bunch of rules and regulations, essential for survival. Their God is very small, and their world is very rigid. Therefore, their faces shout out, no. But the yes person exists in the goodness of God, and they believe all things are possible in Christ who saved us. And their face yells out, yes and amen. You know, during his presidency, Thomas Jefferson, he was with a band of, of men on horseback, and they were crossing the country, and they came to a river that had overflowed because of rains, and it washed out the bridge. And what they had to do, they'd have to forge this river on horseback, and they literally took their life into their own hands. And there were some people, some travelers that were there that didn't have horses that were watching these men go in the river and cross the river. And one of the people needed to cross that river. So he turns to President Jefferson, and he asked him if he would put him on the back of his horse and carry him over. And the president said, yes, no problem. And he took that man. He forged the river. He made it to the other side. The man jumps off a horse. And another one of the president's entourage comes up to him and says, why did you go to the president and ask him? And he was like all shocked. He's like, I didn't know that was the president. He says, all I know is that some of your faces were written the answer no. But some of the faces of the men had the answer yes. And when I looked at his face, his face said yes. So I asked him, do you have a yes face? Jesus' face always said yes. He was surrounded by religious leaders that were hypocritical, they were self-righteous. They were poison. But none of that poison seeped into Christ. Because his face says yes and amen. Does your face this morning say yes and amen? We stand in his grace. We have peace with God. Third thing, we rejoice in the hope of God's glory. We can know that we know. We can have assurance of our salvation because we rejoice and the hope of God's glory. The hope of God's glory is everlasting. Look at the last half of verse 2 down to verse 4. It says, we exult in the hope of God's glory. 
And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. The word exult means to rejoice. That means we rejoice in these things. Christians have hope. Now, because we have peace with God, because we stand in his grace, now we can say, wow, I have hope for a future that is secure. It looks forward. Listen to Paul in 1 Timothy. This is what he says. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope? Jesus is our hope. Our hope for future glory, it is only based on him and him alone. This is the kind of hope that is not, gee whiz, I hope I'm there. This is the hope where we say, I am solidly understanding that I am securing Christ now all the way into eternity. This is the way Peter put it in 1 Peter 18 and 19. He says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of thinking inherited by your forefathers, but with the precious blood of a lamb unblemished, spotless the blood of Christ. Our hope is secure in Christ. You were purchased by his blood. You were held by him. Romans 8, 24 says, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with this perseverance we eagerly wait. Are you eagerly waiting this morning for the hope of God's glory? for Jesus' return. You know, I was having lunch with Pastor Farouz on Friday, and right in the middle of lunch, okay, he turns to me and he says, you know, brother, he says, I just can't wait till Jesus comes back. That's the kind of hope he's talking about. Do you have that hope of the glory of God? Now, our hope in a future, it is secure. It does not move, and it is promised to you and to me, those of us that trust in Christ. Listen to Peter's words in 1 Peter 3 through 5. This is what Peter says. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and it's undefiled and it will not fade away and it is reserved for you in heaven who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. God has guaranteed you an inheritance. Anybody here have a will? An inheritance is kind of like that, but it's written in the blood of Christ. God has waiting for you an inheritance. It's a promise to you, and it's a living hope. And not only that, it will not perish, and it will not ever be defiled, and it can never fade away. It is reserved for you in heaven. It is kept by God, by the power of God is protected. Is there anything or anyone more powerful than God? Secure. When you come to doubts, these are the scriptures that I run to. The moment of salvation, the moment that you were born again, you were given this hope. And hope in Christ, it does not die. Hope in Christ, it does not move. It is solid. You are solid in Christ. We are solid in him. Yeah, but Pastor Rob, I mean, what about suffering? I mean, when I suffer, I begin to wander. When I suffer, I begin to doubt and I start to struggle. This is actually used by God for your benefit, for those of us in Christ Jesus. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says, not only this, we exalt, again, that word is rejoice, in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations, it brings about perseverance. 
perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope. When you have this heavenly perspective, when you have this view of a future that is solid, now you can, you can face today the difficulties on solid ground. And we understand that God is going to use even the most difficult circumstance for your good and for his glory. And this is why James says, consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials. Because what those trials produce in you is a perseverance, a steadfastness. It tests your mettle. It tests whether or not you know him. And then as you go through that trial and you come out the other end, you glorify God. Because he's made you solid in him. And right here, the object of our hope is the glory of God. Our hope is not in us. It's him. And we glorify in him. And one day... We will see Jesus come in the clouds. One day, you will be made like Christ. One day, we'll see even creation cry out, glory be to him. Did you know that according to Amazon, the number one book and also the number one, I guess it's a comment that's highlighted in there, came from the book, The Hunger Games. This is what that little statement is. It says, sometimes things happen to people and they're not equipped to deal with them. Sometimes things happen to people, and they're not equipped to deal with them. You know who the number one people that highlighted that, they figured out? College-age people. The reason is, is that so many college-age students, so many people of that age group, they're doing all this stuff, but they feel like they have no place to go. They're racking up majors and minors and certificates and credentials. They're doing all this work, and they're trying to keep up the rat race to this elusive success and all of it is being driven by fear. They clothe themselves with kind of an armor of achievement that they think is going to protect them against a world that's always shifting. But can I tell you something? It's not going to protect them. The only thing that protects is Christ. And the only thing that our hope should be in is not a degree or what we learn, but in Him and Him alone. Three things. We have peace with God. We stand in His grace. We have hope of God's glory. The fourth one, we're secured by God's love. We're secured by God's love. So why can you be assured? Because of the love of God. Look at verses five through eight. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through whom the Holy Spirit was given. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Hope does not disappoint. This is biblical hope. This is hope in the work of Christ. It does not disappoint. It's not, oh, gee whiz, I hope this happens. It's, I know this has happened because this is a promise from God. And hope, it rests in God's love. God's love is the reason you can be assured of your salvation. But how can we know and be sure of God's love? There's two major things that you see here. First, it says that God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. You can know that you're loved by God when you realize he's given you the Holy Spirit. This verse is saying that your salvation is secure. And the moment that you came to Christ, God gave you a gift. And that gift is the Holy Spirit that is placed within you. Every person that knows Christ has the Holy Spirit. It is a gift from Him. As a matter of fact, Romans 8, 14 says this, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And the giving of the Holy Spirit, it proves your adoption. 
So you have to say, well, Pastor Rob, how do I know I have the Holy Spirit? Let me share just some evidences of the Holy Spirit. Are you sensitive now to sin in your life? It's not that you don't sin, but when you sin, you're grieved. And do you see a decreasing pattern of it? That's a work of the Holy Spirit. Do you enjoy fellowship with God and his people? Do you love God's people? That's the Holy Spirit connecting supernaturally with other people. It's a work of the Spirit. Do you love the Word of God? Does the Word of God minister to your soul? That's a work of the Spirit of God. I remember before I was a Christian, the Word of God I could not understand. The moment I became a Christian, all of a sudden it came alive. That's a work of the Spirit. Do you experience conviction of sin? Do you experience love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control? These are fruits of the Spirit that the Spirit grants to His people. Do you discern truth from error? Do you understand sometimes when people speak and they say something, and all of a sudden I call it the flag. The flag goes up like, mm, that's not true. What is that? The Spirit. I guess keep going. There are many things, but do you see those things in your life? This is the Spirit He's given them to you. That's the first thing He's given you, the Spirit. But the second thing is the Holy Spirit is a seal. It is a down payment. It is a promise from God. Ephesians 1.13 says, Those that have believed in Him were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise who was given as a pledge of our inheritance. Do you realize that the Holy Spirit seals you in Christ? You cannot lose God's love. Yeah, but Pastor Rob, I mean, can't I do something so bad that I'll lose the love of God? That's why he wrote verses 6 through 8. Look at those verses again. He says, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would hardly die for a righteous man, even though perhaps for a good man someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In verse 6, it says, you were helpless. Do you, you understand that, that your salvation is of God? You were helpless. You were unable to come to him, but he drew you by the Spirit. Do you understand it was when you were in the deepest, darkest pit of sin, it was then that he died for you. Now that you're his child, how much more the love of God is in your life. You cannot lose it. Because in the very worst case scenario that you were in, his love was already displayed to you. But now that you're his child, you are secured in your love of him. You cannot lose the love of God. You know, Pastor Rob, I mean, how can we know that I have the love of God and that I love him? Isn't that the question? I think it's a level of commitment. And I think what happens is sometimes we as people, we really aren't committed to Christ even though we say we are. God has proved his commitment to you. He sent his only begotten son to die for you. Look, I look at it this way. The Bible speaks about our relationship with God as a marriage. We're two become one. We become one in Christ. We're united to him in marriage. But think about back when you were dating your spouse or any of you, maybe you're dating somebody right now. And There's a, a time in the relationship when you kind of determine your relationship, isn't it? It's kind of those times where you might say for the first time, I love you. And you're, you're beginning to move to this area of commitment. And let's just suppose you're with that significant other and, and you know that time is now and, and you make this step of commitment to them and you tell them, you know what, I'm all in. I, I'm, I'm committing myself to you and you alone from here until ever, that's it. Now what if the significant other turns to you and says, you know what, I love you too and, and I'm committed to you too. And, but, but I just have 
one thing, one condition. I still want to see other people. That's what many Christians do to Christ. Yeah, Jesus, I love you. But I still want all these things in my life. You know, Jesus, I, I know that this relationship is wrong. I know it goes against the word of God. But you know what? I love you, but I'm going to hold on to this one too. Is that okay, Jesus? You know, Jesus, I love you so much. But, you know, I love my bank account so much. And I love the fact that I'm awesome. How about this? You know, Jesus, I know that you want me to spend time with you, but I'm really into sports, man. I mean, I'm doing the fantasy games, and it just, it just consumes me, Jesus. And, and so I'm going to share you with everything else. Do you know that the number one time that people don't attend church is the Super Bowl? They give up worshiping God for a game. What's competing for your love in Christ? The fact that you may struggle in the area of assurance may not, it's not God. He's fully committed to you, but are you committed to him? Isn't that the question? We're secured in God's love. We have peace with God. We stand in his grace. We rejoice in the hope of the glory in the last one. We are delivered from wrath and we're reconciled to God. We can know that we're assured because we're delivered from his wrath. And he brings in reconciliation. These are the last verses here, 9 through 11. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we shall also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. He says, much more than having now been justified by his blood. He's saying this is even more important than that other stuff I just talked about. Much more than, he's saying, you are justified now by the blood of Christ. He's saying, we are saved by the blood of Christ. That means you are delivered from wrath. If you know Christ, if your trust is in him alone, you have been delivered, you have been saved. And that means reconciliation with an almighty holy God. Listen very carefully if you're here this morning and you do not know Christ, if you've never committed your life to Christ, it is through Christ and Christ alone that you're delivered from judgment. No other way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And the reason that is is because God's holy standard had to be met and it could be only met in a perfect person, somebody who could live out this life without sin. That's Jesus. When Jesus came, the perfect God-man, he lived the life that we cannot and do not live. He lived it perfectly without sin. He willingly went to the cross. On the cross, it says that God poured out judgment or wrath upon his own son. It's called propitiation. It literally means he exhausted himself on his son, his wrath fully expended his wrath on his son. His son took the brunt of your sin. His son took the brunt of my sin. At that point on the cross, it was settled. And then the resurrection points to the victory that had happened on the cross. And what God calls us to do is to simply trust and believe. If you will not trust and believe in what God has provided, you are in rebellion to God. 
But if you humble yourself and say, I now understand that Jesus died for me, suddenly you're forgiven. You're saved. You're justified. You're delivered. He paid the price for your sin, but it doesn't stop there. He also credits to your account his life. He takes your sin. He gives you a right standing before God, and now you're right with God. If you have never received Christ, you need him and him alone. But those of us that have Christ, that's the promise. We're delivered. We're freed. We're at peace. And I pray that's you this morning. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for the clarity of the scriptures. I thank you, Lord, that we do not stand on shifting sand, but we stand on the sure word of God and the promises and the work of Christ on the cross. I thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to make things so clear. And I pray even now, Father, as we close this service, that you would be glorified and you would be honored. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me. 